Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife with the transplant surgery team of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today, we'll be discussing two challenging transplant cases. I'm Megan Lombardi, a third-year general surgery resident. I'm Sasha McEwen. I'm a second-year general surgery resident. I'm Guido Oliveira. I'm one of the fourth-year general surgery residents. I'm Alex Toledo, one of the transplant surgery attendings. Uh, I'm the director of the surgical director of the kidney transplant program and uh, professor of surgery here at UNC. And I'm David Gerber, the Georgia F. Sheldon Distinguished Professor of Surgery and the Chief of the Division of Transplantation. So our first case is a middle-aged female who uh, has really no significant past medical history besides a questionable kidney stone and no intra-abdominal operations ever with a relatively normal social history, some occasional alcohol, distant tobacco history, and no significant family history for any type of kidney disease, who originally presented to her PCP in 2017 with left flank pain. She was also having intermittent hematuria, which was worse with exercise, and had never had that before. She uh, was having a lot of pain in the left flank, like we said, that was interfering with her daily life. She was rating it at greater than 5 out of 10. And so she originally presented to a tertiary care center to explore what was going on and was eventually diagnosed with nutcracker syndrome of the left kidney. She was exploring options such as kidney donation versus autotransplantation versus a simple donor nephrectomy. But given just these ranges of options, she was rejected for a autotransplantation at that tertiary care center. So she ended up coming to our institution to, again, be evaluated for possible kidney donation. So, Megan, tell me about Nutcracker Syndrome, kind of its anatomy and some of its symptoms. So Nutcracker Syndrome is compression of the left renal vein, most commonly between the abdominal aorta and the SMA. Um, There's two main types, anterior, which is the most common type, which is between, like I said, the aorta and the SMA, and the posterior type is more rare, which is when it gets compressed between the aorta and the vertebral column. Um, It's pretty, the prevalence of it is not known, but it's definitely higher in females and tends to be uh, more common in older patients. Symptoms can range from being asymptomatic to having some hematuria to pelvic congestion Um, flank pain, abdominal pain, a pretty wide variety of some generalized symptoms. In order to diagnose it, you can do imaging methods such as ultrasound, CTAs, MRAs, um, and then based on how symptomatic the patient is, is how you kind of decide on what you want to do. So treatment options can range from anywhere from surveillance to doing a nephrectomy. So, Dr. Toledo, how do you determine candidacy for living donor kidney transplants when you see patients in your clinic? Well, in general, or in a nutshell, Megan, it's um, I, I ask uh, three questions basically. There's uh, I, I, three things we want to check off. We say sound mind, sound body, sound kidneys. So we start with making sure that there's no evidence of coercion with the patient, that they can give an informed consent. Um, that they have the wherewithal and social support and um, mental health to get through the stressors of a transplant, that it's not a trigger for another 
um, event for them. Uh, that's sort of what we mean by sound mind. Sound body will look at their past medical history. Um, we'll make sure they don't have any predisposing factors to themselves developing kidney disease later in life because kidney donation is really a lifelong commitment to their health. So it's not just whether they can get through the surgery, but whether they have any risk factors that 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road is going to predispose them to renal disease. So if they have hypertension, if they have uh, early signs of diabetes, whether that be, um, you know, we're looking at a urinalysis or looking at their BMI to make sure they don't have, um, you know, metabolic syndrome type picture. So that's the sound body. And then sound kidneys, we'll look at the kidneys and make sure the kidneys are symmetrical, that they function symmetrically, um, that they have adequate function. We know the contralateral kidney after donation will hypertrophy a little bit, but we do want to make sure there's enough reserve so that um, with age and the associated decline with GFR over time, that that patient would always have uh, uh, abundant renal function uh, going forward for you know, the rest of their life. What are some of the anatomical considerations for a living donor kidney transplant candidate? So just as a quick review, so in the classical anatomic position, the kidney's hilar structures are organized from anterior to posterior in the following order, like renal vein, renal artery, and ureter and renal pelvis. Uh, the renal arteries come directly off of the aorta uh, laterally and just below the takeoff of the SMA. Uh, and the right renal artery transverse behind or posteriorly to the IVC. And it's also important to remember that the left renal vein crosses the midline and usually anterior to the aorta. So in the workup for uh, leaving kidney donation, uh, it must include like detailed imaging uh, with either CTA or MRA uh, confirming the vascular anatomy of both donor kidneys. Um, if there's any um, variation in the renal arteries, uh, position or numbers or the renal veins and also in the renal uh, to get information about the renal parenchyma and collecting systems. If any uh, abnormalities are seen, uh, those are not absolute contraindications uh, and decisions should be made on a case-by-case -case evaluation with a multidisciplinary team. So how often do you end up doing a auto transplantation versus just a simple nephrectomy? It's fairly rare to do it really exceedingly rare to do the auto transplant, especially in a patient who has a, a sufficient reserve. The auto transplant really just adds risks in terms of uh, a larger surgery, a longer surgery, uh, more anastomoses, more risk for bleeding. And the rate of thrombosis for whatever reason for an auto transplant is much higher than a uh, allotransplant. So it's really infrequently done to take that kidney in someone who has sufficient reserve of renal function and autotransplant. The one nuance I think that we do look at autotransplant would be time when the collective renal function for the patient would be significantly compromised, right? So sometimes somebody where their GFR of the remaining kidney would put them at higher risk. It, it, that's a scenario where we would look at somebody for doing an autotransplant to what Dr. Toledo had said. So as you mentioned, Megan, this patient was referred from another center for a second opinion or, you know, more appropriately, a fresh start. She had been seen at another center, and her initial consultation was simply for a nephrectomy to get the kidney out with the indication being pain and hematuria and the pelvic congestion. So 
Um, she was refractory to all medical, other medical management, and she had reached the point where she had decided she's getting the nephrectomy, and that's it. So uh, when at that initial consultation, they had brought up considering um, using that kidney uh, for, as a living donor transplant. And out of an abundance of caution, the other transplant center felt that uh, because they um, had proposed this, that they didn't want to be viewed or thought of in the sense that they were coercing the patient in and in the transplant community were very hypervigilant about making sure that um, the donors come to this decision organically and autonomously. So uh, they referred her, her to us. They allowed her several months to sort of think about it and make sure that this that she had sort of internalized that uh, desire to proceed with having that kidney go forward in the form of a living donor transplant. So um, honestly, when it got to us, the, the ethical issue of that had been removed and we knew this kidney was going for nephrectomy. And so the decision really was, um, in the context of the surgery being essentially the same with the exception of dissecting out a few extra centimeters of vessels, the risk was the same. And the decision was once that kidney came out, is it going in a bucket and going to pathology, or is it going to be a life-changing, life-saving procedure and it's going to go on to help somebody else? So fortunately, uh, she chose the latter, and that's sort of where the case begins. Our second case is a middle-aged man with a past medical history of cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma who underwent liver transplantation and was readmitted postoperatively with severe abdominal pain. He was found to have hyperbilirubinemia and underwent an ERCP for stenting of a biliary stricture. This patient did not have ascites preoperatively, but did develop persistent abdominal ascites postoperatively. He began to require large volume paracentesis two to three times weekly for pain control to allow for increased PO intake to keep up his nutrition and to keep his creatinine normalized. He eventually underwent peritoneal drain placement with interventional radiology. A hepatic venogram showed no evidence of, of hepatic vein outflow obstruction, but did show an elevated transjugular wedge hepatic vein pressure, which is compatible with portal venous hypertension. After much multidisciplinary discussion, he underwent a TIPS procedure. Over the subsequent weeks, his ascites and abdominal discomfort improved, leading to better overall nutrition and improved creatinine. So the point to highlight with this case is that while the patient did not have significant preoperative ascites, he did develop persistent and refractory ascites postoperatively. Guy, what are some of the causes of portal hypertension and how does it usually manifest? So uh, basically, portal hypertension develops when there's resistance to portal blood flow and is aggravated by increased uh, portal collateral blood flow. In the United States and Western countries, uh, portal hypertension is typically the result of cirrhosis, and that happens in more than 90% of the cases. In other parts of the world, non-cirrhotic portal hypertension due to causes such as schistosomiasis or portal vein thrombosis are the leading causes. The clinical manifestations of portal hypertension include splenomegaly, esophageal and gastric varices, abdominal wall collateral vessels, and thrombocytopenia. Also, ascites, which is the accumulation of fluid within the peritoneal cavity, usually occurs when the hepatic venous pressure gradient is higher. These patients develop progressive abdominal distension and may complain of weight gain, shortness of breath, early society, impaired eating, and dyspnea, uh, resulting from this fluid accumulation and increased abdominal pressure. And how is portal hypertension usually diagnosed? So... 
You could potentially use ultrasound, although uh, the findings are they might may support diagnosis, but they're, they they lack sensitivity. Uh, the the best way to measure is what we call the pedic um, venous uh, pressure gradient, and that is a measurement of the pressure between the portal vein and the inferior vena cava. It also uh, quantifies the degree of portal hypertension due to the sinusoidal resistance to blood flow which usually is the most common cause of portal hypertension like you see in cirrhosis. So the, a normal pressure would be between one and five millimeters of mercury uh, and portal hypertension is considered when it's above six. Uh, usually it becomes symptomatic when uh, it's above 10 and when varices can develop, but uh, usually uh, a number equal or higher than 12 is what puts patients at risk of developing ascites or bleeding. So this patient ended up having a TIPS procedure. You can you kind of tell us what that is? So the TIPS, or transjugular intrahepatic portal systemic shunt, is a procedure that uses imaging guidance to connect the portal vein to the hepatic vein in the liver. So a small uh, stent is placed to keep this connection open and allow the blood uh, to drain from the bowels back to the heart while avoiding the liver. So the TIPS may successfully reduce internal bleeding in the stomach and esophagus in patients with cirrhosis, but they also they may also reduce the accumulation of fluid in the abdomen and reduce the ascites. That's why uh, this was indicated for our patient. So Dr. Gerber, why, as in this case, why would a patient develop new onset ascites postoperatively? Sure, it's a great question, Sasha, and one that we don't deal with a lot, but there are a few causes. And the way, <clears throat> the way to look at that for somebody that didn't have ascites beforehand is to break it down either, is it anatomical um, with respect to the actual vasculature, or is it something that has to do with the uh, liver itself? So if we look at the liver itself, the first thing to think of is, is this something donor-derived that could be contributing to the ascites? Sometimes you'll have patients with uh, some chronic liver changes that were not well appreciated before the transplant, and those can progress. You can also have a scenario where fairly early on after transplant, not common, but patients can develop something called regenerative nodular hyperplasia, which that's almost these benign nodule formations that you'll see on imaging that can cause a sort of a pseudoportal hypertension or develop ascites. The other component leading to this is the vasculature, and that's the area that we tend to focus on more because obviously for the transplant, that's what it is, right? It's inflow and outflow. And in thinking of it, the two areas that are going to, that can cause artifactually portal hypertension, one would be at the portal venous anastomosis. So a prehepatic position, if you create a stenosis of the portal vein, you'll by default create portal hypertension as the blood flow is trying to go across that anastomosis. Um, those patients will typically, you know, have a harder time managing that ascites and approaching that, somehow you have to be able to dilate where that narrowing is at the portal venous anastomosis. The other area would be the post-hepatic side, and that's at the caval anastomosis. And remembering, liver transplants can be done two ways. The standard technique is what's referred to as a bicaval anastomosis, where you're sewing the suprahepatic cava of the donor to the recipient, as well as sewing the infrahepatic cava 
of the donor to the recipient. In that case, you've replaced the entire retrohepatic cava. Those patients are not common to have hepatic venous outflow issues because you've replaced the entire conduit. So you can't really create a lot of torque. You have to worry about because the liver, the way it's going to sit, and the way you've created the two anastomoses. Where it's more common to see this secondary portal hypertension is in the piggyback technique. And that's where you're just sewing the suprahepatic cave of the donor or the hepatic veins of the donor to the recipient's hepatic veins or the recipient's suprahepatic cava. And the reason that those patients can develop portal hypertension is because when you're doing that anastomosis, you can create a bit of a torque effect on the liver, and the liver can actually rotate counterclockwise about, say, 90 degrees sometimes, upwards of that much. And if it does that, you'll get this torque on your anastomosis, and you'll get what's similar to what patients have with Bud Chiari, which is hepatic venous outflow obstruction, or, or they'll see that pressure gradient, and then that translates back. So you've got portal hypertension coming either from the post-hepatic side or the pre-hepatic side, independent of the cause, that is the most common source of, of ascites formation that we see post-transplant. Now, the other thing, and I, there's always one more thing <clears throat> that can cause it, is patients having rejection, right? So you have pretty significant inflammation by the t with, with rejection with a cellular infiltrate. During that remodeling process, patients with severe rejection can actually have ascites, but that is tends to be very self-limited, and by default, they don't have portal hypertension. So it's ascites from portal hypertension versus ascites without portal hypertension. So, Dr. Gerber, and when you're there in the operating room, there's anything that you, you keep in mind or you're most concerned about when doing the anastomosis or, or the procedure uh, in terms of preventing uh, hypertension or, or any complications? Sure. So again, speaking to the two areas that we're focused on, with respect to the caval anastomosis, with the bicaval anastomosis, it's less of an issue because your, your orientation is going to be okay and you're not going to purse string the, the anastomosis. The issue with the, with the piggyback really is making sure your alignment and you've made your, your anastomosis large enough to give yourself, to give yourself some spacing so that the liver can rotate into the right upper quadrant without pulling and compressing on, on that anastomosis. The bigger issue is on the portal vein. And remember, you know, when we sew the portal vein, you're sewing in a straight line, but it's going to have to dilate up when it's perfused. So you'll remember when we've done cases, we talk about leaving a growth stitch, which is roughly about the equivalent of um, the radius of, of, of that circle when you open it up so that that anastomosis can open up without having a waste effect, and which would create portal hypertension. One of the few times we let you do an air knot. <laughs> so how common is TIPS post-transplant, and how do you kind of eventually come down the road to deciding to pursue that option? Yeah, so going to TIPS post-transplant is a very um, controversial and, and complicated <laughs> process. It, we learned this the the hard way in the beginning when, and I'll segue from a history story, when patients were having early recurrent hepatitis C cirrhosis, when normally you would tips people in the pre-transplant setting to control their portal hypertension. When we did that for those early hep C patients after transplant in the early phase, they did horribly. 
So TIPS really kind of moved away as an option for managing things like portal hypertension and ascites. Now, hep C is different today than it was back in those days. We still are very reluctant early after transplant putting a TIPS in for a number of reasons. One, you have a lot of anastomoses that are still fairly fresh. Um, our interventionalists are very good. It's, you know, they're going to be coming down and going through the hepatic vein, boring through the liver to the portal vein branch. But again, you know, when the liver is in this remodeling state, there is still a higher risk of bleeding. So it's for us, we go through a whole medical algorithm first to manage this, and we do give it a fair amount of time. We would go to paracentesis first to control the ascites, because usually whatever is causing the ascites is transient in a short time frame, and less is more at that point. But in a case where you have somebody with persistent large volume ascites formation, compromising other organ function, going to a small caliber tips, which is what you would do, is the last step to control their portal hypertension. Also with the theory that if it's a small caliber portal, oh, small caliber tips, you could always go back and occlude it later if they developed medical encephalopathy, because that's one of our concerns with tips in that setting. I know we don't have any numbers on it, but it's in talking to the radiologists after we'd come to this conclusion amongst ourselves, I remember bringing it up with the interventionalists and they kept saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? So it's a really it's, rare thing to, to do it. It's almost case reportable in today's yeah. day. Like yeah. it is that uncommon that we'd have to go down this route. Yeah. But he was certainly miserable. I think everyone who took care of him could remember you know, he was on dialysis. He was, right, he had, re, right yeah. he, had, he had ongoing right, acute kidney injury mm-hmm. that was complicated by his ascites. He was at risk for secondary bacterial peritonitis. Wasn't eating well no. with the massive ascites, couldn't right. really, had no appetite. So he was kind of spiraling the wrong way, I think, and, you know, fortunately. Pretty, pretty significant lower extremity edema, yeah. you know. Fortunately for him, I think, uh, even though it's rare and we... Uh, we're hesitant to do it. I think it was probably the right decision for him. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.